Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. And welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. This is our weekly program covering arts and arts events in Valparaiso and throughout Northwest Indiana. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum, regional art patron Mary LeVan, and our landlord, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments. If you'd like to find out more about leasing space in this historic building, please give Walt a call, 219-462-5821. I'd like to thank them for their generous support. Thanks to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President, Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and is part of the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. That's artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. Our program, along with all of our programs, are streaming live at wvlp.org. Art on the Air is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Our shows are carried by Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., and you can hear them at lakeshorepublicradio.org. Our entire show archive can be heard at our website, breck.com AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com AOTA. And make sure to like us on our Facebook page, Art on the Air, WVLP. Art on the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art on the Air and, of course, the WVLP station, we'd be happy to come part of the WVLP family anytime. We have information on our website at breck.com AOTA. You can find out support information there or at wvlp.org support. And Art in the Air Spotlight, we now feature from Paul Henry's gallery, the gallery owner and curator, Dave Mueller. Thank you for being on the air. Welcome, Dave. Hi, guys. Uh, real good to hear from you. Uh, you know, things are pretty quiet these days. So anytime anybody walks in or calls in, it's a great thing. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, tell us a little bit about what you're doing under uh, COVID-19 and uh, how that's uh, influencing what you do in the gallery. And tell us about where you're at and everything like that for our audience. Well, I'd uh, like to tell you that a lot's going on, but it just isn't. I mean, we're no different than anybody else. Uh, when that whole thing hit and we had to shut it down, we literally had to shut it down. I mean, I had event after event for March, April, and May, and, and it all went out the window. So what we've done in the meantime, we've done a couple things. First of all, uh, we've had a, a couple of fundraisers, you know, just to bring some cash flow into the gallery that which kind of offset what we're losing. You've seen restaurants doing um, advanced sales and gift certificates and so forth. And that's what we've done. We, we started a, a uh, advanced ticket uh, sale in, uh, in March and April and kind of let that one go on for a while. And, and then I thought, well, you know what? Go 
real foreseeable end to this at this point. We'll kind of back off of that and we'll, we'll focus on a couple of more things. And uh, one of the things was the South Lake Artist Co-op artist group who kind of uses our gallery as their their um, clubhouse or their their meeting place. Um, they, they produced a nice little uh, coloring book that was... Um, designed by various artists and and so those those were sold um, for uh, about a month and a half and now we started in on that again so that's another activity that we're involved in and then uh, finally uh, we've got a little fundraising campaign uh, to get some funds together to put a new roof on this place uh, that's an expensive proposition and um, we've managed to to raise some significant funds, uh, which is very heartening, extremely heartening in, in this climate that we're in. My goodness, everybody's worried. Uh, people are not working, they're broke, and so on, and yet still we've accrued some donations. So uh, that is just really amazing to see. Now, the one activity that we've kind of maintained in a, a different level, uh, let's put it that way, uh, we've taken our, our Thursday night jam night, which is uh, really a signature event for us and, and the source of a lot of our revenue. Uh, we put that online, kind of a line, live stream thing, where we ask performers that who have played here in the past to record themselves and then send in the videotape. Uh, we construct a two-hour live stream, and then that goes off onto the Internet at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. And, of course, you can imagine in two hours we can pack in performances from 20 to 30 different artists. And, of course, through editing and so on, it works into a pretty, pretty legitimate professional show. And then, then we'll pass a little virtual tip jar uh, during that broadcast, and then during the week following that last uh, broadcast is available to review uh, if somebody missed the live stream. So those are kind of like the four things that we've done beyond the fact of um, I've maintained my back door being open to view the art. I've got uh, some rules that I hold to. Uh, no more than three people in the gallery at a time, and everyone must wear a mask. Uh, our hours are still the same, 11 a.m. to 5.30, uh, Tuesday through Saturday. We only have about a minute left, Dave, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about where they could donate uh, to you and where they can see these shows online? Well, most of it is Facebook. And uh, if you go on to Paul Henry's Art Gallery on Facebook, uh, you'll find you'll find the links to these shows there. Or the uh, the live stream originates from another site. It's also a, a Facebook site uh, called Peer Imagination, and the production is done off that site. And then we uh, link it in to our gallery page. You can find it on my personal page on. On my group page for the gallery, on the uh, gallery business page, all, all the way through. The rest of them, uh, same way. Just look for the links. Uh, I'm constantly reposting these. So anyone who uh, gets into the, the gallery page or my personal page, you should be able to find those. If you can't, just send them a message and I'll make sure that you get them. Thank you guys and um, 
uh, we hope to be able to resume regular activities, but uh, for my look at things, it won't be for a while. So look at these various sites and links, and, and we hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Dave. Very good. Well, we appreciate you coming on the Art of the Year Spotlight. That's Dave Miller from the Paul Henry Gallery, which is located at 416 Sibley Street in Hammond, and how he's keeping the gallery operating in a virtual mode. Thanks for coming on uh, uh, Art of the Year, Dave. And next on Art of the Air, we have Les Fredkin. He's a producer, composer, virtuoso guitarist, and innovator on the Star Lab Zitar. He employs futuristic music playing techniques, realizing a progressive neoclassical rock from the pioneer MIDI guitar. Les, welcome to Art on the Air. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Aloha. Well, tell us a Aloha little. Aloha to you. <laughs> tell us a little bit about where, uh, your journey, like how you got from where you were to where you are now. Well, I'm originally from New York City, and um, I grew up in, in basically an urban and suburban environment. My mother was a classical pianist, which is, I think, where I got my classical background from originally. And uh, then I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, as millions of others did. And I looked at my dad and I said, that looks like a good job. And he groaned. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, he said, please don't do that. And... Um, I got involved in the music business when I was 18 and uh, started out as a session musician um, and a solo artist for MGM Records. Um, well, actually, even before that, I was on Columbia, CBS, um, and um, wrote a couple of hits back then um, and then got into record production. That was my real goal at the time, was to be a producer like Phil Spector or Joe Meek or those people, um, not temperamentally, just musically. <laughs> and uh, so uh, <coughs> they, um, uh, they, they were my original inspirations. And I did a lot of experiments at home with sound overdubbing. So by the time I actually walked into recording studios, I knew an awful lot about the technique of bouncing and engineering and production without actually having been in the studio. Um, and the producers and groups and artists that I've worked with saw that fairly quickly. Um, so um, it was um, relatively not that difficult to break in. I, I had the uh, ability um, sorted out as far as playing guitar and keyboards. And uh, I was also undergoing classical music training at the school, so, which has served me very, very well since then. And then as time moved on, I um, did um, production for RCA, for Lori. Uh, records for ESP Disc, uh, for Sunflower MGM. And uh, then came the middle of the 70s. I was confronted with a choice, be a disco session musician or find some other way to get famous. And so I saw the advertisement for uh, Beatlemania, which it wasn't labeled that. It was just said, looking for musicians, singers, musicians for unique opportunity. And I went in and I passed the audition instantly because I certainly knew the Beatles' music. In fact, I had just produced a Beatles sound-alike album for television consumption about a month before the audition. Wow, talk so about I, synchronicity. Um, yes, I guess it was divine providence that way. So <laughs> I, I went in, I passed the audition, and I said, what have I just gotten the job for? And they said, never you mind, just show up tomorrow ready to sing She Loves You. <laughs> and when they put the whole band together, I, I, I saw Mitch Weissman sitting on the couch and I said, I don't care if he can play anything. Look at that face. We've got to get him in the band. As it turns out, he turned out to be a pretty righteously good musician. So um, 
we, we had a very unique chemistry for four people that didn't even know each other. And um, we rehearsed for 10 months, six hours a day, sometimes longer, at Studio Instrument Rentals in New York City. And by the time we actually walked on stage, we were a tremendous band. Uh, that I can recall very vividly. We knew what we were doing. We had our act together, and we went and proved it. And we were doing something that was more difficult than being in a normal band, because you can make a mistake in a normal band, and nobody knows. But we were put up against uh, records everybody were familiar with, and uh, we actually had to replicate the Beatles' mistakes in order to be held Authentic. up as doing it correct. Yes. So how long did that run? On Broadway, 1,006 performances. I did every one of them but one. And uh, I think at the time I set a Broadway record for consecutive appearances on stage. You know, didn't matter if you were sick or not. You just went on and did what you had to do. Uh, and then it went into bus and truck mode. And um, mm -hmm. I, um, after Broadway, I did other things. Went back to record production because I had a contract that, re that required it. And uh, then I got into the jingle business in the 80s. Um, and some of that experience still sits with me in terms of the music I now do. And uh, I worked for Score Productions, ABC TV, soap operas, jingles, wrote 52 national yeah. jingle hits. Can you share some of those jingles that you did? No, but you know that, well, sure. Um, it's a Honey of a No, it's Honey Nut Cheerios, <laughs> uh, Crisco Oil, Nestle's, um, uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, American Express, membership has its privileges. It's a long list. And as far yeah. as the soap opera, um, One Life to Live is the most prominent one. I don't know if it's still on the air, but at the time, we basically created music for that soap opera five days a week. But I never watched it. Didn't need to. They just taught you what a tension cue was, what a romantic cue was, what a curtain was. And what I did do, which was unique at the time, is I changed. This And I say this without fear of opposition. I completely revolutionized and changed the sound of TV music to synthesis because MIDI had just come in and I looked at that in the store and I went, that is where the future is. And so I learned how to do it. I had some good mentoring at the time from some of the people who invented the spec. And... Um, I changed the sound of television music. It's still that way today. So cool. Tell us about some of the instruments that you were playing that are unique, uh, like uh, what the Mellotron, I believe it is, is a 12 and 6 string guitar. Uh, uh, the, well, Mellotron is a keyboard instrument that was prominently used by the Moody Blues and the Beatles. Uh, it's a tape replay device. Uh, the, the keys, you press the plays the recording of um, violins or flutes. In fact, you hear that sound on, on the two songs you're going to play. Um, the violin sounds are Mellotron um, that the Beatles used in the intro of Strawberry. I've been playing those since I was a teenager, and um, I generally play electric guitar. I'm not too much into acoustic guitar. Um, it's a little hard on my smaller hands to press down on, uh, but if I need an acoustic guitar sound, I have uh, samples of them that suffice very nicely. I've also played Sinclair, which I own, which was a, the, one of the first digital computerized music systems. Synthax, which was the predecessor to what I now use. Uh, MIDI guitar, the Starlab Zito, which is what I use now all the time. I mean, I can also play harpsichord, piano, organ. You know, I'm a trained musician. Very good. Didn't you, and I don't know whether I read this right uh, or inferred it right, you have a guitar that was created for you that somebody could could then pick up? I don't know, that turquoise one you were playing that you said oh, was oh, reissued, or was that just... It's um, Hallmark Guitars 
God bless them, Bob Shade makes them. They're basically recreations of the old Ventures Mosrite instruments, okay. and which I happen to like. But Bob made improvements in them and then worked closely with me to make further improvements to what he had originally done. Um, I wanted humbucking pickups on my signature. It's a, it's a signature instrument. It's basically what I like. And if somebody likes what I do, that's the instrument they should play to be like what I do. Um, it has quieter pickups on it so that, because I use basically a lot of effects that create noise in a, in a guitar such as a Fender. And so I needed something that didn't make noise. When you're sitting in front of a computer monitor and you need to record, you don't want all that hum and buzz going on. So that was one issue. As far as the color, my wife. Very nice I color. Just gave, I, yeah, I, gave her the, I gave her a palette of all the possibilities. She said, I like that. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to kind of move on to some of your music. And uh, one of the things we talked about doing is Everything is Wrong. You want to tell us a little about the setup for that before we play it? Uh, yes. This song is part of a, what was originally called Reality, the Rock Opera. And uh, my wife and I wrote this rock opera. It was my actually my first solo album back in 2003 or four, around then. And when we wrote it, everything that was described in this song was starting to happen, but most of the people who heard it refused to believe it was happening. Now it has already happened. Um, and the song describes a variety of things. You know, you get up in the dark to go to work and you come back in the dark never see daylight you work in a cubicle you talk at the office about all the complaints you have but nothing changes we were seeing very clearly at the time which has manifested itself in current events that corporate america was becoming a little too autocratic for most people's uh survival and so now that song serves as a, a template for the story that's in the new album the less fratkin news i've um reissued these songs because their time has come 17 years later well let's go ahead and take a listen to it right here that's everything is wrong Yeah. 
stays clean Complain about the boss but never say what you mean Fight for praise, another raise Do what you gotta do to break the corporate maze People sweat and slave, plying the train Others get rich off the work that they made Nothing really works, false hope perks Just around the corner, a new world lurks And that was Everything Is Wrong. Excellent. And that was from what album? It is, it's from a, my new album, The Les Fratkin News, which uh, is being, it's already on Bandcamp, but it's being released on iTunes and Amazon and Spotify July 30th, 2020. Um, the song was originally featured on my rock opera, Reality the Rock Opera, which is also available. And uh, also on my Rehearsals for Retirement, Greatest Hits Anthology as well and uh, so those are the places they can get it is anything on uh, hard like cds uh yes reality the rock available as a cd you can buy it on amazon very easily excellent so um anything unique in your career that you uh, came across uh, working with the uh, different things uh, you know uh I, I know i ran a small ford track studio for many years in the 70s and the 80s so i I'm like, but you know anyone you worked with that was particularly good or difficult or anything like that and you don't have to name names if you don't want but <laughs> Um, well, I generally find that the music business is peppered with all sorts of people, some who are difficult, but do it because they believe they're right, and often they are. Uh, some who are difficult and really have no business being that way, and many who are an absolute pleasure to work with. It depends. I've worked with guys like David Sanborn, who basically slept through the session, but he's a genius sax player. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of people I've worked with who are... Who are Terrific people. You know what I want to know? So I know that you write a lot of your music. What makes you choose to um, change 
like the Canon and D or the Ode to Joy that you've done? What what makes you choose those songs to adapt to your style? I'll talk about it in more contemporary terms um, because that's what matters now. The songs were chosen expressly because YouTube has become the destination of choice for discovering new music, and you and and you. YouTube has an issue with sync-to-picture rights. That is to say, if you want to cover somebody's tune, you'd better have permission to do it if there's a video attached. That is a very difficult thing to achieve in many cases. For example, I've asked the Beatles many, many times, can I do one of your numbers? It's only going to help you. They always say no on YouTube, so I don't do it. Whereas Steve Vai generously allowed me to do Liberty because as far as he was concerned, it was helping him. That's the reason, excepting for Liberty, that you never hear me, see me do any videos other than originals. That being said, I chose the classical music because it's public domain, so I can do it. And I chose those songs because most everybody has heard them. That's true. As far as the way I did them, I just have my own way of hearing them and doing them. So, Les, I wanted to congratulate you on all the awards. I, I, um... So the two, um, the 2019 Executive Award for Folk Rock and Excellence and Creativity and Music was yours, and that was. So I saw the video clip of that. So have there already been nominations for 2020? And are you? Nobody's well, asked me yet. Nobody asked you <laughs> yet. Nobody's so asked you, me yet. But, but so what do you think it would be for crash. four? Well, system it, crash? it would be yes, yeah, System Crash. I consider System Crash the finest piece of pop music I've ever written, and Additionally, I hope that it will represent my legacy to the world because it is so important to have it heard and so important to have it um, uh, absorbed by people. It's, um, it's, a, it's a statement. Right. I hope they watch that seven-minute version because that intro is really beautiful. Yeah, it's based on Box Fort's Loot Suite, by the way. It's a single? Yes. A system. This is the edited version. The piece originally was over seven minutes. And in today's environment, folks just don't have that kind of patience to be listening for seven minutes. So uh, we edited it down to under five minutes so radio could play it. And they certainly have latched onto it in a big way. And um, it describes basically what's happening now in the world. But it was written 17 years ago. Don't ask me how it came to us. It just appeared. Okay. But it does describe a world where um, everything is um, crashing around us. And I think that is what we're seeing. Appropriate for the time. Well, let's take a listen to it. This is System Crash. Stole all our hope, now we got no cash. System crash. 
And that was System Crash. Great song. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. So Les, tell us a little bit about how COVID-19, this whole pandemic thing, has affected you, maybe negatively, or maybe you're more productive by being in-house, or how that how that's influenced you. Well, I'm in good health. I'm not ill. So that's a good thing. Um, as far as my, I, it, it's really limited my freedom of movement. I haven't been playing any shows for a while, so it didn't affect me in terms of income. I'm technically retired, as you've mentioned you are. Um, so it, it wasn't even a matter of having to lose a job because there's no job to lose. Um, I'm retired. I'm comfortable. I have, I don't, I would never have had to work again anyway. So it made no difference to that. Um, what it did make a difference to is, just freedom of travel, freedom of movement. I had a lot of plans for my wife and I to travel around the world this year. Needless to say, those aren't occurring. Um, 
but the other thing is is that I, I think it it has impacted psychologically people's ability to communicate in a visceral way that they took for granted before. And maybe that's part of the thing that's resonating in, in my song, System Crash. I hate to bring that up. That song is describing some of those feelings that COVID represents for people. For me, I'm not doing too much music at home. Um, it's um, to do a record like System Crash takes months. Yeah, it's true that I have the time to do it. I'm waiting for the world to catch up to what I've done so that I don't have any great impetus to do more at the moment. <laughs> yeah, we've talked to some artists and a lot of them is they have actually liked the creativeness of being sheltered in. You know, artists can kind of create. and But yeah, it'd be kind of like, what are you looking forward to in the post-COVID-19 world? Being able to move about again without having to ask somebody permission. Being able to not have to wear a mask outside. Uh, and for... Um, um, some of the truth of what's really going on behind the scenes to finally come out, which the song discusses. I won't comment any further on it, but the song takes issue with some of the stuff that's being said. So tell us about some of the people you've worked with over the years. Uh, I think you said Paul McCartney's and a few of the others that uh, you've had the privilege of working with. Well, I've, I've produced the left bank briefly. I knew them as friends for a long time. I worked with Michael Brown recently on a EP called Finale. It was Michael's last songwriting <clears throat> that I did with him. Um, and as far as that one specifically, um, he had always wanted to do an instrumental record since he was over at Buddha Kama Sutra, and I wanted to do it with him, but politics, the way it was at the time, it just didn't pan out. But we did do that. He passed away before we could finish the whole album, but four songs remain. Um, I've worked with The Drifters, Earl Lewis and the Channels, Marilyn Brown, um, the Royal Guardsmen, who did Simply versus the Red Baron, although I worked with them much later in the game than that. Um, I worked at Apple Records as a session musician, working with Trash, some of Mary Hopkins' things. Um, it's I, I've played on dozens of records that you don't know I'm on because I signed non-disclosure agreements because the game at the time, you know, everybody made a big deal about the Monkees were the first act. They weren't the first act. It was very important for bands to be uh, seen as being the band. And it was also very important to get studio work done quickly. And, you know, electric guitar was a pretty new thing. The Mellotron was a pretty new thing. I knew how to play them both fluently. A lot of the guys in the groups were not that skilled yet, although they got better as time went on. I think that's the reason I was picked to be in Beatlemania. I, I had the knowledge. They figured, okay, we'll sort out his face and his appearance. But you can't teach somebody to play like that. And, and that is, I believe, really why they chose me. They needed somebody there who knew the Beatles like the back of their hand. And I did because I had worked for them. And so I had had the privilege of hearing a lot of the parts on the original master tapes before they were even mixed down. When I went into it, I knew what I was doing. So were you ever were you consulted on the movie as well? I didn't did you have any part it. with the. No, I, I passed on it. They, I'm not even sure they. I think Steve Lieber asked me and I passed on it. My theory was this is a live event, so you can prove we're playing in a movie. Anybody can dub on for anybody else. And I had never adhered to the practice of having somebody deputized for me, and I wasn't about to start things, so I passed. So what is your 
um, currently, and of course, I mean currently before the pandemic, what was your play out? Were you still playing? Were you playing out or were you mostly just doing things in studio? I was just doing the studio recordings. I had done a couple of gigs for the Bongo Boy folks uh, in New Jersey. And um, I, the last gig I played was Ventures Fest in Pennsylvania uh, last October. And after that, I said, I don't want to do that anymore. And the reason I said it is because I went in there with a MIDI guitar situation that was unbelievable. I mean, I say this without fear of sounding like I'm egotistical. I was doing something that was fantastic, bloody fantastic. And they're all sitting there on their phones. And I said, if that's what it is, I'm not doing it. Because I come from an era where people respected musicians and came to listen, and they were not listening. I mean, no disrespect intended to the audience, but they were being disrespect. And at that point, my wife looked at me and said, you want to keep doing this for what? And I said, it's hard to argue with that. And so I said, I'm retiring. And then the pandemic hit, which gave me the idea, oh, here's something. I can promote this music. And, you know, I don't, um, but talking about it is more, I mean, if people want to see me play it, you've seen me play it. It's, it's on YouTube. I don't want to do uh, in-home live um broadcasts of playing because it's complicated to do that. Larry, you know that. It can be very complex. Um, so it's better just to talk about it, promote it, get it on, on radio. Uh, if the occasion arises where performance would be absolutely necessary in an important situation, I'll consider it. Yeah. I know. They can they can they can check their cell phones at the door. <laughs> <laughs> their cell phone they're watching. Yeah, one one question I have and and I, I sometimes debate this with people about uh, the recording process since you've been involved in engineering. A lot of people talk are talking about how vinyl is so much better and I says, you know, it's not so much that vinyl was better is that the process back then was much le- much more direct. I mean, you literally went from microphone to tape, very little processing from that to a pressing. And I said, if you listen to the recording techniques, it's a lot different. And then now you know, things are a lot different. Why don't you speak a little bit to that in your own experience, how that uh, the recording techniques has actually changed over the years? Well, it's changed, but I haven't changed too much with them. <laughs> um, I don't mean to sound like Tom Schultz, who's strictly an analog guy. Um, and I saw his studio at the start of Beatlemania. I was shown his studio. It, it was it was quite something to see all that analog stuff all over the place. But I like digital recording. I know how to use it correctly. But I still tend to bounce as I did back in the four-track days. When I started, three and four-track was the norm. And then 16-track on my first solo record. And I didn't... I didn't like the idea of having to sit there and delay decisions. I much preferred what Les Paul taught. He said, don't walk up to the recorder until you know what you want to hear, or you'll waste a lot of time. And so to this day, I tend to hear the record in my head and then simply execute what I hear in my head. Perhaps I'm blessed that way. I don't like sitting around, dickering around with try this button, try that button. It lights up the tree on the White House lawn. It's, it's, I like to know what I want to hear. And then I just go do that. I mean, I've got over 40 software synthesizers in my computer. And if I had to search every sound to find what I wanted, I'd never get anything done. Right. I think there's a lot of playing around with things in, in music today. And um, I'm kind of like into jazz, uh, like the Maynard Ferguson's and things like that. And I listen to some of those recordings. And one of the things I know is they, they recorded things far left and far right channel. All of a sudden, the saxophone is all left and then comes in another instrument far right. And you don't really hear that technique anymore, uh, the, the extremes in the stereo. No, I, I mix in what I would call broad, broad mono. 
Yeah, there you go. What I hear, I want you to hear. Yeah. So, Les, is your wife a musician? How did you two meet? She was a choir singer. Um, she was a real a Hall of Fame realtor, and I met her after a Beatlemania gig um, at the Broadmoor in Colorado. We were brought in for an enormous sum of money. Uh, her committee said, "Get me the Beatles." And she said, well, I can't get you the Beatles. Well, get us the next best thing. They happened to chance upon my manager at the time. And uh, he said, well, I can get you the guys from Beatlemania. And so they booked us to come into the Broadmoor, which was a five-star, five-diamond hotel in Colorado Springs. Uh, we played the show. It wasn't one of our more fantastic performances, but it didn't matter to her because she was in the back gambling. And... Um, we chanced into each other at the Golden Bee Tavern after the show because that was the only place she could get food. And I was sitting at the table next to her, and her sister said, oh, there's the band. How could she miss the long hair? And um, I sat down next to her and basically never got up. <laughs> so. Aww, that's a sweet story. And we got married at the very same place a year later. So did I read that you were on American Bandstand? Yes. Um, <laughs> At the time, it was my first production back out of the gate after Beatlemania. I had to go back and honor my Laurie Records production contract. Mm. Uh, um, my The label insisted. My mentor who got me into the deal and out of the deal temporarily to get into Beatlemania was quite specific and adamant about it. And um, so I went back and Gene Schwartz, who was the vice president of the label, he noticed that Stars on 45 was a big hit. Uh, the, the medley of Beatles songs. Naturally, being the guy he was, he said, we got to do another medley. What would it be? And I said, how about a medley of Beach Boys song? I knew we could do this because I was working with some guys at the time, Richie Tusky and Tony Pernice, who were amazing imitators of Beach Boys and Raspberry sounds. And so I brought them into the studio and we did the Summer Fun medley. And Gene, being an old friend of Dick Clark, he made it happen on American Bandstand which was a thrill well, because was you it don't a fun? get to do it that. It must have been totally fun. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, yes, it was ex very exciting. And I, of course, I'd already met Dick Clark because he came to see in the original rehearsals. So yeah, it was, it was great. And it helped the record become a regional hit as well. Did you work with the Beach Boys? Well, I know. Because you've got that surfer them. sound down. <laughs> yeah, I know a few of them. Um, I know Bruce. Um, I've talked to, uh, well, Al's a fan of um I, they offered to help. Um, Kurt Besher helped on the record. He's deceased now, but he, he was originally a producer of the association and he was in the Millennium and a few other acts you may not have heard of. But Kurt was an amazing harmony singer. He was, in fact, you can hear him deputizing for David Crosby on Going Back by the Birds. He's doing all those high harmonies. And um, Kurt um, helped us out a little bit, but uh, the Beach Boys, well, you know, Bruce is a great guy, and um, I love them as people, and I love the music. I listen to them during the pandemic all the time, going swimming pool. What do I want to put on? Beach Boys. You know, what's the Jankholic? Uh, I saw that in your biography. Explain what the Jankholic is. Jangleholic. Oh, Jangleholic. Okay. Jangleholic. It was an idea for a song that Loretta, my wife, and I had. We were trying to take advantage of my 12-string guitar sound and explain it in some way. So we decided to make it a sort of biography history lesson of my life. And that's what the lyrics describe. Uh, the original time I heard the Beatles play it on Hard Day's Night, um, the time the birds made it more popular than that, 
um, and the um, and and how it entered into my my career. Um, and then what happened in the eighties? I was uh, see when I got out of Beatlemania. I'll I'll share a story with you. John Lennon and I were very good friends, and we became very good friends because of a session I did at Apple where he got to argue with McCartney about whether or not a particular record would come out. He was thrilled with what I did with it, and McCartney was not thrilled because I put Mellotron strings on the record, and he had expressly insisted that they not be done that way. He just wanted a demo so he could hear the group sing song. And Lennon, taking that golden opportunity, rubbing his hands with glee, said, that's a good imitation of us. It's going out. And it did. Main top 40. But the story is this. We were in the middle of the show. And I saw John and Yoko on the street. And John walks up to me and he said, so how's the show going? And I said, well, John, sold out for six months. He said, it's good to have a job. That was his humor. And he said, so what are you going to do when the bubble bursts? I said, I don't know, John. I'm kind of being typecast as George Harrison. He goes, I know. Once you've been a Beatle, it's hard to get out. Uh, Which I took as a compliment. Yeah. But when I got out of the show, I had to keep doing 12-string pop music because that's what I was world famous for at that moment. So it didn't matter if I had other ideas or whatever it was I could do. Vocal pop records were what I was known for. And so that is the reason I went to do the Summer Fun Medley and the other things we did um, at that time, because even though I had ideas about how to do synth pop, which was very popular at the time, and I had played on some of those records as a side, you couldn't change who you were. See, this is the trap of pop culture. And I say this with 50 years of experience, so who doesn't look at it? The thing is, the thing is, once you do something that everybody knows you for, it's pretty hard to change that. It's like, look at Carol O'Connor. He's Archie Bunker. George Reeves is Superman. Michael Keaton got away with it. He was Batman because he was in a mask. You know, it, it's once you've been a Beatle, it's hard to get out. And so, and yet I was doing things before Beatlemania that were far more important than that. I don't mean to diminish the accomplishment, but I was already a pretty experienced music. And now I'm doing things that are more important than that. And hopefully people will see that. But just the same because it was such an icon of pop culture and because Beatlemania literally founded the tribute band industry, it's had taken on a life of its own. You have a thing called, uh, was it Bar Baroque music, uh, Baroque rocks, uh, where you kind of bring back with your own flair. Tell us a little bit about the Baroque rocks. Okay. Um, I was trained, I have a degree in music literature, specifically Baroque music. So I know more about Baroque music than the average pop musician does. Um, I did that album because I wanted to showcase on the Z-Tar the, the speed and virtuosity and the melodies. Baroque music is actually a very soothing music to listen to. It cools you out it, if it's done right. Uh, that was an opportunity at that particular moment to do that music and take advantage of YouTube's new policy then that you could no longer do covers unless you had specific permission, as we talked about before and that album is on amazon prime and it's definitely one of the best things i've ever done i think but it showcases my knowledge of baroque music okay um and the other kind of music you have is there any musical genre that you have not explored that maybe you'd like to like i don't know if i've seen anything jazz like in your repertoire well i worked with dave sanborn and oh. james morrison the trumpet player from australia uh, i can't say that i wrote any of their music um I, I retuned Dave Sachs solos for him at his request. 
And I, and I did invent a way for James Morrison to play where the band, the, the sequencer was following the band rather than the other way around. Uh, but um, I, no, I've never done jazz. I don't, I, I, I've worked with people in jazz, you know, as a, um, a programmer, but never done the music. But at this stage of my life, Lord knows, I mean, it's not a good time to start, even though I enjoy it. I, I like my favorite jazz act is modern jazz quartet. I like you know, I'm wondering what your process is when you does a does a does a sound come into your head? How do you how do you compose? I mean, what is your dynamic? Well, it changes depending on which record you're talking about. I don't have any one way of doing it. In the case of the reality, the rock opera music, which has now been reissued, we've just heard before. That was the situation where literally the divine channel opened. I woke up at four o'clock in the morning for weeks on end and everything was in front of me. Literally sat down at the piano or the organ, which is where I generally write. All the words were there. I mean, literally writing them down as fast as they came into my head. And then the melody appeared and there it was. In the case of System Crash, the introduction appeared later. I had no idea how to start the song or the record. And then that just sort of appeared. Um, in the case of Baroque Rocks and the instrumental stuff, I have a very specific way of doing it because I'm a classical musician who plays rock rather than a rock musician who dabbles in classical phrasings. I do the classical score first by ear. I cannot read music any longer because of my failed eyesight. So I do the score by ear. I hear everything in the, so in the song. I hear everything in the score. I've known it anyway since I was in college and recreate that two bars at a time top to bottom, next two bars, next two bars, etc. And then I overlay the rock ideas on top of it. And that's part of what gives it the sound that it has, is that I'm actually playing classical music with a rock rhythm. Yeah. Whereas a lot of guys in rock, now some of them are trained. I mean, Rick Wakeman is a conservatory guy, so he knows what he's doing. And yes, I love him to death personally. He's a wonderful man and great player. Ingve Malmsteen, who a lot of people speak derisively of, is a genius player. He's, but he's done this by ear. I don't think he can read music. He, he just learns it by rote and plays it. And he's very, very fast. Um, Maestro Alex Gregory, who's a good friend of mine, is a trained player. So and I've worked with him briefly. Um, but um, I do things back backwards from most rock people. I do the classical idea first, and I build the rock arrangement around it. And maybe that's sort of how... Maybe that's how System Crash ends up um, being the way it sounds, because I always think that way. I, I don't think in terms of, man, let's just get a good beat and see what happens from there. That's just, for me, that's not happening. Uh, it's so interesting, because like, uh, Bernie and Elton you know, are a pair, and I'm always interested when somebody's doing something on their own, you know, how it all works. So thank Well, Loretta you. and I are a pair. I tart it up, and she gives me the brutal version. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> when you're talking about process, I know a lot of people ask uh, composers, do the lyrics come first or the music come first? And you sort of answered that, but uh, do you sometimes, is, is the process reversed for you at times? I find it more difficult to write words when the music is already there than when the words are already there first. I don't know why, but the cadence of the words suggests the melody. And I find that when I'm working on the music first, it tends to end up as an instrumental. It's not a hard and fast rule, but generally, if you know what a song is going to be about, then you know where the music has to go. That holds true if you're a session musician. For example, when I'm doing session work for people, I've got to hear the vocalist. I have to know where their phrasing is to be able to play around them. 
One of the gifts I, and I'm very blessed to have it, is my ability to make up licks clear out of thin air in response to another musician's doing something on the spot all the time. It's one of the things I've always been able to do. I don't know where I got it from, or how well, it appeared, but it's there. That's why you're called a virtuoso. So. Do you have a home recording studio or the, the capability of doing everything in your own home? I have two studios, one in the United States and one overseas. So wherever I happen to be, I have a studio. Do you ever dig out, do you, did you ever have any analog equipment? I mean, I have all my analog equipment down in my basement, you know, stored away. Um, I no longer have the 24-track studio I used to have. I sold all that stuff when I sold the New York studio. But I do have all my Tom Schultz Rockman equipment. The, you know, the guitar analog stuff. That, and I use that for my guitar solos. It makes sounds that I've customized with some of the modules uh, that I happen to like. So I still have those. I still have uh, analog effects pedals. But I, do, I have not recorded to tape since 1987. Yeah, that's about where Actually, I still need to. That's about where have I stopped, ever- too. <laughs> yeah. Yes, ma'am. What? Yes. No. Have you considered, are you writing a book? Have you considered writing a book? The stories are so interesting. I've thought about it, but I'm trying to figure out a way to make it happen without people stealing it online. If I could figure that out, yeah, I probably would write a book. But then again, if I do enough interviews, I won't have to. (laughs) (laughs) We'll write the book for you. Any final thoughts as we wrap it up here? uh... Well, I've had a very long and blessed career, blessed career, 50 years in the music business, this year, actually last year, 2019 was 50 years. And I, I just, um, the only thing I could say is I, I, I think that young people need to get a handle on getting away from the hype and getting away from the button pushing. And I, I think it's a tragedy that music is not being encouraged too much in schools at this point. But now the kids are home most of the time. They really should try to learn music. It's uh, apart from it being a team sport, which it generally is designed to be. I think it's a great educational system. You learn discipline. You can't get anywhere in life without discipline anyway. Right. If you interviewed Robert Fripp, he'd tell you so. <laughs> and um, it, it's um, it, it's music is the window to our souls, yeah. I think. That's- and that's why I'm blessed to be on your show. Because oh, you encourage that. We appreciate that. One final thing is, can where can we find you online real quick? Well, lesfratkin.com, L-E-S-F-R-A-D-K-I-N.com is my website. You can see me at Reverb Nation. Just type my name. If you type it wrong, Google will correct you. Tunes, I'm on Amazon, wherever. I'm, I'm all over the place. Pages and pages. Les, pages we appreciate you being on Art in the Air. That's Les Fratkin. He's a producer, composer, virtuoso, guitarist, innovator, and as you've heard in this wonderful interview, just uh, all around a great guy. Thanks for so much for being on Art on the Air. And we'd like to thank our guests today for being on Art in the Air, which is heard every Friday at 11 a.m., rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Your hosts are Larry Breckner and Esther Golden. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President, Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum and Walt Brenninger of Paragon Investments. Also, Mary LeVan is our art patron supporter. Art in the Air is supported by the Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. See you right here next week, 103.1 FM and 89.1 FM Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Explore.
Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself.